0: Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world right now. I'm so excited about our guest today, Naguset. Naguset was chosen from a catalogue of First Nation children and raised in a Jewish family. Between the 1960s and 1985, thousands of Indigenous children were removed from their families, often without parents' consent and adopted out under the program known as the 60s scoop. Naguset was taken from her Cree family as a toddler. She was taught to disregard her Indigenous roots and assimilate into a new mould. Eventually, she reached her breaking point and began the arduous search for her biological family but it also led to the discovery of her own voice and her mission to support Indigenous people in the face of adversity. Naguset is the Executive Director of the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal and Co-Director of Resilience Montreal. Recently, Naguset received Woman of the Year Award. This is her story and this is her passion. Naguset, I'm so excited and honoured to have you on passion harvest today. or Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Well, I've already done your introduction. Let's just get started for the audience. Do you mind just explaining what the 60s scoop was, just a bit of a background?
1: So if you think of residential schools being sort of like a federal initiative, the 60s scoop was, was a provincial one. So every single province participated and they did it through adoption so all the adoption agencies had to sort of remove all their white children and they only received native children that were up and the thing was that the social workers would go into the family homes take pictures of the children and then they were submitted as you know an adoptable child but the problem is that most of the um, <clears throat> parents had absolutely no idea that their children were up for adoption and that's literally what happened to me i was at the foster home at the time <clears throat> And a social worker came in and took my picture. And I was living in Thompson, Manitoba at the time. And they sent my picture over to Montreal, which is quite far. Mm-hmm. And my parents looked at a book at Jewish Family Services. What's interesting was they had gone to Jewish Family Services a year prior and were able to choose any kind of child. And they chose like this white boy, this baby. And then when they went back, because they didn't think they could have children. They only had native kids. So they had to flip through like you know like an, uh, a picture album of children, and they got to my picture, and they're like, "We'll take her." So I was removed from that foster home in Manitoba, and then just put on a plane, brought to Montreal, and then it was like, "Okay, change your name, change your identity, um, and you're going to grow up in a nice white home, and everything's going to be fine," which it isn't. I came with memories. I came with, I guess, a little bit of bit of baggage. And I think, you know, my parents were kind of scratching their head going, what do we do with this kid? Like this kid is not like, you know, she was so cute in the picture and now she's like, you know, sullen, unhappy." So you have to understand that I'm being adopted and I have a blonde brother and a blonde sister Mm -hmm. and I look like an alien. They're like, you know, so that whole sort of question about, well, why do you have this last name and you look completely different? And my parents were like, okay, well, if people ask you that question, you tell them you're Israeli because Israelis are dark. And I was like, but why? Why would I lie? Why, why can't I just say that I'm, I'm Native? So I already had a bit of a rebellion at that, uh, at that age. And uh, I, I kind of stuck to my guns. I really wanted, they didn't want me to be proud necessarily of my culture. And you have to understand that in the 70s, you know, when my adoption went through, Um, the kind of media and the kind of uh, knowledge of Indigenous people was incredibly negative. So I think people just learned about us from like cowboy and Indian movies, right? right? Like, that's it. I think that, you know, when I was adopted, my parents thought that, kind of used that whole reverse psychology where they're like, you know, you don't really want to be part of this culture. Stop trying to identify yourself with this you know, with the Jewish culture, you can have so much, you could, you know, we're going to open the door so that you have like a full life. And, and, and if you go down that other path about, you know, wanting to be indigenous and knowing who your real family is, it's not going to be a good story. So just don't go there. And, but I mean, every day you look in the mirror and you know who you are, you can't ignore that, you know, that you're indigenous and, and, I'm not sure why I've always had this sort of like cultural pride, but I really wanted to learn everything that I could about being indigenous. And, you know, the content was not around. I went to Hebrew school. They changed my, you know, my birth name was Margaret Murray. They changed it to a Jewish name. Um, and then I even got a Hebrew name on top of that. Uh, I was expected to, you know, only be, um, in the Jewish community and, you know, sort of going to these different, you know, camps and different schools that, you know, like, that I, I should mingle within their community. But I was always sort of like, um, being a fish out of water, like it was very strange. And you, you know, it was, you have to understand, my parents were, they came from a wealthier, you know, background. And um, I didn't really desire that, um, that wealth, my, my parents, lived in a particular area in, in Montreal called Westmount, and Westmount is just like mansion after mansion, and what's nice about Westmount is that back in the day uh, before, I guess, you know, Europeans came up, it was Mohawk territory, and they used to do a lot of, um, uh, like, ceremonies up in that area. They had, like, trails there, so there's something Like when you're walking around Westmount, there's a calmness. You can almost feel the spirit. So I remember walking around as a teenager and and feeling good in the space, but walking around, looking at these houses and feeling like I was just a visitor. Like I am never going to be moving into any of these houses when I move out. This is not going to be my life. Like I knew it back then. And um, it was difficult because I had to sort of make a choice about where did I want to go? And that was so hard about, you know, being a teenager, going to school, knowing that you have a future, but what is your future and which life are you going to live in? And am I going to just keep denying that, you know, Indigenous and pretending that I'm not when clearly I am, you know, and, and when, it, when is the good time to sort of embrace the Indigenous community in Montreal? So, yeah, there was a couple of years where I was sort of like, you know, on that line of, you know, which, which path do I go?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, that, they're all those universal questions, I guess, you know, so many people hopefully ask themselves, get curious, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? What is my path? I wanted to ask you, did you did you find uh, a resemblance of
1: love in your adopted family? Um, I had the most incredible uh, grandmother. And, you know, in, in Yiddish, we she was called Bubby. Um, and she was the best. And like, from the moment we met, we just were, you know, um, she, she was the, she was that woman that every time I walked into a room, her face would light up. She was so happy to see me. Um, she completely took me under her wing. Um, she always had positive words for me. She was, she was like my champion. And yeah, yeah she was just the best person ever. I mean, I think that everyone who met her felt the same way about her because she just had this really, uh, beautiful energy. She had an amazing laugh. She, uh, was unbelievably caring and she didn't take crap from anyone. So yeah,
0: (laughs) she was really great.
1: Yeah. So, Um, you know, I mean, she was my go-to person. She was like the, the person that, you know, I would love to spend time with whenever I could and you know eventually I left home I left home at 18 and, and I mean that's usually the age where you're allowed to leave your house so uh, it was pretty much a countdown from like when I was six I'm like okay how many years do I have to do here like, deal Gosh, five. Well, like- I
0: mean I, I just can't even imagine what those feelings must be like and you know who who loves me just just you know all children you know, really need, yes. need that love, or even not love, just kindness. Did you find kindness in your home?
1: Not so much. No, no, not for my parents. I think, you know, I mean, my, my uh, adopted father was a businessman or is a businessman and he was not around, you know, like every day he traveled, you know um, my mother, you know, I mean, she raised us. We also had like a slew of nannies um, throughout the years. Um, but uh, I was always considered like the problem child, always. There was always something wrong with me. So that was really difficult because um, I didn't really fit into that box. And I also had the resistance of not wanting to. And they couldn't get over that because it was just like, this is how everyone else dresses. I'm like, why? <laughs> I want to dress like that. It's terrible. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean, why? That's the, you know, everyone listens to this music. I'm like, are you joking? I don't want to listen to that. So there was that kind of a bit of rebellion throughout and and they just like were scratching their head. They're like, well, why, why is she like this? Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess, you know, also the fact that, you know because I, you know, came from, you know three very difficult years going from foster home to, you know, being moved all over. I still had, you know, sort of, um, you know different kind of baggage or even, you know, walls that were up. Like I, I, I was able to, you know, my mother, my adopted mother used to say that I was very street smart. I don't know. Well, you
0: certainly have had a lot of life experiences, even at the age of three, my gosh.
1: Yeah. And I could also just feel that, you know, the, the, the kind of values that they had and the way they, being like an indigenous person and hearing some of the comments they made about other people that weren't in their family, you know, different races or different. You know, it was really derogatory. I was like, "That's pretty bad." <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, they didn't. Anyway, I don't know. They were, they were, just you know, sending them light and love, and and you know, like I have no ill will towards them. They did what they did, and I was able to move out at eighteen and and, and you know, live my life the way I have. Um, and and you know, I mean. I don't know. I don't like, I think that, you know, I believe in karma and I think that when you do negative things that, you know, one day you'll have to answer to it. And I think that's maybe something that um, I know moving forward in my life, I try not to, um, I try to do things in a good way. And I try to, you know, Even like my bubby used to say, be careful about what you say because you can never take it back. And even though you can get angry in an argument or whatever, to just not say those negative words. So I received a lot of negativity and I'm thinking, you know, perhaps one day they'll, they'll have to struggle with that. Or maybe they won't. Maybe they will just be like, you know, water up a duck's back. Like what? (laughs) That was offensive? (laughs)
0: Look, you know, thank you for sharing pieces of your childhood. I know you don't want to go into detail and you're not comfortable with the Mm -hmm. trauma that you experienced. Um, Did you, just a question, were you worried at some point that they'd ever give you back and give you back to who? Was that a concern?
1: Um, That's funny because I actually had a, just before I moved out of home, um, there was a conversation about that, about maybe them sending me back to my <sighs> what's difficult is they would portray a picture of indigenous people and in my community in the most negative fashion so Over the years, when you're constantly being told, if you go back to the reservation, all the boys will rape you and all the girls will beat you up because they are jealous that you grew up in Westmount. If you go to the reservation, uh, all they have are drugs and alcohol. Um, So all these really negative things, you know, like your mother never cared about you and this kind of thing. And we got into sort of a crossroads where it's like, you know what? We think we're just going to send you back now. You've been really difficult for us. Oh gosh. Like, um, you know what? I'm out. (laughs) And that's actually how I left home. I didn't just leave home. I pretty much ran away, you know, because I, one night I just decided I'm out and I took some stuff and I didn't tell them and I was gone. So, but I always think that because I was 18 that, you know, it's, it's not really running away if you're 18, but you know, I made that choice. I didn't, they had portrayed a picture of my Indigenous family as so horrible, and then were basically rejecting me saying, you know, things have not worked out in this family, and you're not abiding by our rules and what we are our expectations of you, and therefore, we'll just send you back to like Manitoba. And I'm like, well, I don't know Manitoba and I don't know where you're going to send me, but I do know Montreal and I could try to find a life here. So thank you very much for your <laughs> offer of a plane ticket, but I'm out. <laughs> and I just left. And, you know, I think for them, what was difficult about me leaving was that, um, you know, Jewish girls don't leave home uh, unless they're getting married or unless they're getting, you know, uh, going to some university. Otherwise you stay, you live with your parents. And when I left, then there were questions from the community as to what happened (laughs) so i left and then people ask questions and now currently i don't exist (laughs) okay i know it's not really funny but you know like my um you know when my my adopted brother passed away there's always like uh something that's in the newspaper you know where they do an announcement and they'll mention my brother and only having one sister even though he has two so i don't exist Like, I'm not allowed to be spoken of. I'm not allowed to be referred to. Like, it's just don't go there. Don't talk about or don't. Um, So and I think it's because, well, I don't know exactly why, but I think I insulted them by leaving because they really felt you could have all this if you stay with us and you rejected that. And why in God's name, would you go back to that community? Why? And, you know, it's what I did right? And I I wanted to create my own community. So that's basically what I've been doing, you know, uh, in Montreal is, is the thing about the 60s scoop is that I know a lot of other indigenous kids that were adopted by Jewish families. And the reality is, most of them had as bad as an, uh, like as bad as relationship as I had, or worse. And sometimes when you're in these, um, when you have this kind of relationship, um, and if you don't have proper coping skills, uh, you kind of, you know, um, you know, when I left home, um, the only person I had who was positive in my life was my buddy. And, um, she really, um, she really saw that I could be something in my life um, I remember she used to say, you know, you're going to do great things one day. And I remember, you know, my parents telling me, you're going to be a prostitute or a drug addict. That's your future. Right. So, So, well, you know, so when my bubby would say that to me, I'm like, no, I'm going to go to jail. That's, that's my future. That's what I've been told. So why do you think um, your
0: parents chose you?
1: Well, well, because that's all they had, right. They went to Jewish family services and they're like, okay, we want a kid. This is what we're giving. Oh, okay. Oh, we'll take her. But you kept this, your
0: essence, your strength throughout this. And I know you spoke about it, your grandmother, who always valued you. And, and from what I understand, is she helped you find your biological family, which I think took 20 years.
1: Yeah. Well, um, she was really great because I mean, You know, I would almost see her every weekend after I left home. Um, And, you know, I would always talk to her about what I was doing. And it was really important that I I got my Indian status because, you know, once I left home, I received nothing financially. So I had to make it on my own. But part of my Indian status, part of the treaty is that, you know, if you're a status Indian, then you can um, get uh, your post-secondary education completely paid for. Right. So I wanted to um to get that, but I needed to get my Indian status. So, you know how difficult it is to like I went to the native friendship center and they were like, Who's your mom? I'm like, I don't know. Who's your dad? I don't know. What nation what nation are you? I think I'm Cree. They're like, Okay, we'll get on it. It's really hard to get your Indian status when you've been taken away, you know, through the 60s scoop. They don't keep yeah. the records. So They're you trying had to
0: assimilate you. No names
1: of your Family or Nothing. your mother? I didn't even have, I didn't even know my real birth name. Wow. I only found that out much later. So, you know, they started the paperwork. Um, the, the way I was able to get the information, which is really sad, was that when, oh my God, okay, this is very like convoluted. So I'm warning you. My mother, my biological mother, she had seven children. Um, during, you know, some time in her life when she was probably in her 30s, she married a white man named John Murray. And um, he had already had something like 13 children and his wife had passed away. So he ended up marrying my mother and he adopted me, even though I'm not his biological child. So that's when I became Margaret Murray, and he adopted my older sister, who was not his child, and she became Sonia Murray. Then when he passed away, that's actually when all the trouble started with youth protection, because he was very, you know, he was stable and he had a beautiful home and we lived with him. But after he passed away, my mother, you know, sort of had difficulty. When he passed away, he put us in his will. When my sister Sonia turned 18, she saw the will and she saw the list and she saw my name. She was like, there she is. There's my sister. My sister's in Montreal. I'm going to find her. She got in touch touch with the trust company. The trust company said, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to tell you where she is. She's like, well, I I will write a letter. Can you mail it to her on my behalf? And when she mailed the letter to my house when I was like 15, my parents ripped it up. They didn't want to have anything to do. But the information, the family talked about it. So my, uh, my bubby already knew that there was family looking for me. So later on, when I left home, and I ended up getting part of the estate, that's when she's like, look at all these brothers and sisters you have. You write to every single one of them. You explain who you are. You tell them you're looking for your mom and your sister and you want your Indian status. And maybe someone still lives there. And of course, the documents were quite old. But one brother who remembered me and he's like, when I finally got in touch with him, he's like, I used to change your diapers. You know, what's really hard about the 60 scoop was he was willing to take me. But the government really wanted to put me with a white family, even though he himself was well established and he had like, you know, a mining company in Flin Flon, Manitoba. Uh, they still decided, no, we'll, we'll place her with with a white family. So that is how I found my sister. So it was through my bubby, you know, and her encouragement to, to do this letter campaign. Um, I found my sister and then I went home Well, I went to to uh, to Manitoba to To go and finally meet her, and that was that was really good, you know, to meet her. And then I had another brother, Wayne, and uh, you know, a couple of other siblings that I met, and, and um, nieces and, and nephews, and you know, that was it was good to 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 come back. And what was hard was my Bubby was dying in the, at that time. She had cancer, and she was really worried about what would happen to me after she left this world. So she really wanted me to have that support system and she knew that it wasn't going to be, be my adoptive family. So she's like, let's try your indigenous family. And those, those sort of negative, you know, stories that they would reject me and hate me and all that were not true at all. They were so happy. You know, my sister was so happy, but the, the history that we have are, is, is very, very difficult. And um, but the the bond that I had with Sonia was intense and you know like my Bubby gave me unconditional love and then she died and then it was replaced by Sonia so I had that and then Sonia passed away as well yeah it's I think it's going to be close to four years now um the thing is that you know because um the reality, like the truth of the matter is that um, every time I meet a family member, there's the there's the excitement of knowing your family and the the realization of what happened when we are separated and the years in between and the 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 pain that was caused and the fact that we can never get that back we're living almost like different realities in different parts of the country. And um, it was, it was too much for Sonia. She was just, she was just tired of the constant fighting. And when we talk about intergenerational trauma, she's someone that was able to like, we all carry the trauma, but she continued it. Right. So a lot of the behaviors that Mm -hmm. our mother presented to her, she ended up presenting to her children. Um, and, and she really couldn't, um, like she felt very guilty about it, but very stuck. Like, why can't I, you know, get along with my children? Why can't I relate to my children? Why can't I, like, what is that sort of obstacle that's not allowing me? Like, you know, she needed to have a lot of, you know, like intergenerational trauma counselors, someone who would work with her through it, but she, you know, she, she just didn't have the time or the resources for it. You know, I did the best that I could as her sister to always be there for her and support her in any way possible, you know, and it it leaves me with a lot of guilt because I run the Native Women's Shelter. So I should, I should, I should have the tools to help her and I really tried at the end when I knew that she was gonna you know commit suicide because what she had done was she sent me one of those like um suicide videos so basically if you're watching this it's because right so um in in her video um she basically said, listen, I need you to continue for me. I need you to let people know about what the 60 Scoop does to people, how it really um, affects people. And um, and that was like her dying wish. So it's the reason why I talk about her. It's the reason yeah. why I share about her, because I want to honor her last wish, even though it's difficult and she was really like the strongest person that I ever met. So it really it floored me when she, when she died. And um, yeah, so, so <laughs> now I have to push forward as hard as I can forever. I don't know how many years I'm on this earth, right? Um, but I have to, I have to honor her, her wishes and I have to try to break you know, the barriers that face indigenous people and and I I do it with like, you know, a crazy commitment and a um I don't know. Like I I I do the best that I can. I pull in the resources that I can, I pull in the geniuses to write the proposals, I am not afraid to meet with any of the, you know, um, levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, I say it like it is, and, you know, thankfully, working at the shelter, I have like a really good track record of creating projects and moving things forward. And, you know, of course, I have a fantastic group of people that are around me, because I certainly don't do it by myself, but I'm sort of the visionary of this is what could work. And, um, you know, I, I just, um, the reality is that even though what happened in the sixty scoop, there is no longer a sixty scoop, it continues to happen. You can go to Manitoba and I think like 90% of the children that are in youth protection are Indigenous and they, it is, it is, there are so many kids in care that when you're like a a certain age like you know maybe 15 years old they just put you in a hotel you're like just wait here your social worker will show up those kids they end up getting you know they're the ones that end up getting missing and murdered right like it's something's gotta be fixed so what i do you know is is try to create programming um and if it's successful then maybe someone will go oh look what montreal's doing we're going to replicate it right so that's basically what I do. I, <laughs> I do everything I can to honour my sister's last wish, and I, I work really, really, really hard. really hard. I mean, you're the epitome of someone with passion.
0: I've stopped crying now, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but, oh, my gosh, you, you certainly are, you know, living your path and your, your passion, and, and you spent years searching for your your purpose and your passion what for people that are listening to this episode whatever situation they might be in but looking to find what is my meaning you know how can I create change in the world how, how did you find this continued strength and essence of yourself what's your advice to give to the listeners
1: first of all when I was a kid I always knew I wanted to be in the helping field so that was like that that was my um like, you know what your purpose is when you're young. You know what you're naturally good at. And I felt like I could be helpful. I just felt that I could. I wasn't. Ex- I needed to get the training, you know, getting a degree and all that, right? Because after I got my Indian status, that's the first thing I did. I went back to university and I have a degree you know, in, in applied human sciences, I have a BA in human relations. Like my joke is now I can get along with my parents, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't, but anyway, (laughs) but, um, but you know, like, you, you know, what you're, what you're naturally good at and what you want to do. And you should always do, like, you should have a career that is, um, doesn't feel like a career. Like, I often feel like I can't believe they pay me to do this. Like, I love what I do. I love the fact that I can, you know, create change and talk to different people and, you know, create like, like I do a lot of different stuff. Like in Montreal, I have Resilience Montreal, which is a shelter that we're turning into like a wellness center for the homeless, which is a whole thing that people are like, what is that? What's a wellness center for the homeless? I'm like, wait and see. Like, we're in the process. We already have a building. We just bought a new building you know, interview me in another year when we <laughs> open it and I'll tell you all about that. You have the Raphael Andre Tent. I have a project for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women called Ishway. I have the Cabot Square Project. Like like this is, this is fun stuff for me. Most people would like run screaming from the room and I'm like, are you kidding? This is great. I get to work with different people and I get to vision what I want to do. But again, you know, know what your natural talent is and go for it. Ask always for advice from others that are more equipped than you are so I don't actually think I'm really smart but I surround myself with geniuses and nobody seems (laughs) to notice that I don't really know what I'm doing I'm just like this is what I would like to do how do I do it what do you think what do you think what do you think help me write this write the proposal thank you so much presented and approved right so you know get a mentor Having a mentor is amazing. I mean, you know, my bubby was my mentor, and then uh, Rena Daibo from Gunawage has been my other mentor. She was the one who said, You'd be a great director for the Native Women's Shelter when, you know, the position came up. I'm like, What are you talking about? I would be a terrible one. Apparently, you know, I'm so far I'm okay, right? So, you know, those are pretty important things. And, you know, the thing is that, I don't really have a choice to give up, especially after what happened to my sister. I don't have a choice. I know if I, if I don't keep fighting, I know what the alternative is and I'm not going there, right? Um, I need to, I think that when you have a title like executive director, it comes with the responsibility and you need to like use that title to, to push through all those doors that, are, that have been closed. you need to be completely per- persistent and you need to find another way in. So sometimes I'm like, just try to say no to me. (laughs) Just try. (laughs) I will find another way. So, um, yeah, that's basically, but, you know, maybe it's my buddy that's, you know, watching me from wherever she is i mean i'm just gonna assume it's heaven but anyways that's a christian thing i don't know anyway i'm a jew i don't know anyway (laughs) but you know what i'm saying right like i believe that you know i believe my bubby spirit is 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 watching over me and i believe that i also have indigenous spirits that are that have been leading me on the right path because i really could have ended up in a completely different way i like there i really believe that you know there is some sort of guiding force and i I wanted. You only have one life, and you can make change. And I'm doing the best that I can um, to to do that. I'm using all the resources around me, and um, you know, it's not easy. Like it is not easy. I know I might make it look like it seem easy, but it's not. It's constantly, you know, thinking and talking and preparing and you know. But you, it's, you know, like like our history is so sad. It is so sad our history right so um, if, if you have that power to to make um, to create programming to to make it better for that next generation there's something like with the indigenous people we call it um, the seventh generation prophecy so this is a prophecy that elders have talked about and they actually say it's the Those that were taken away are going to like come back and they're going to lead the way. So it's like those that were brought by the 60s scoop. I mean, it's not word for word, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's they said that, you know, it would be those that sort of walk between two worlds. Right. And that's that's how I'm described as being brought up in a white family, but being native and walking between. And I know how the white white world works and I know what they want to see when they have a proposal. I can use the expertise that I learned in my adopted family and bring that in right? And I can use the knowledge from the community and bring that in and find some kind of happy medium and, and, and move forward. And I've been very lucky to, to get uh, as far as I have. And um, yeah, I still want to do probably another 100 things before my time's up. So Oh, I'm
0: sure you will. It's funny, I was almost going to say just before you said that it's almost like you've got a foot in two worlds, well, in this world and the non-physical realm, your ancestors and your grandmother that are guiding you, and, that, that, and that's beautiful. Now, we said thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you?
1: No. Good. <laughs>
0: we covered a lot. And I really want to thank you so much for your openness and honesty. And um, the work you're doing is absolutely amazing and very much needed in the world. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks
0: for having me. It was really great to talk to you.
1: Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Sorry, I made you cry. (laughs) That's okay.